Good morning, everybody. Um, if you don't know me or if I haven't met you, my name is Sawyer Trapp, and I'm our student ministries pastor here. And Matt has kind of taken a bit of a break this Sunday. They've been on a bit of a staycation this week. Um, just taking some time before those twins come, because as you imagine, that's going to dramatically change their lives. So taking a bit of a break. Um, so I get to preach this morning. So it's my great opportunity to not only teach our students throughout the week, um, middle schoolers, high schoolers. Uh, we meet every Wednesday night. If you are new, if you have a middle schooler or high school, we'd love to have you come out Wednesday night, 6 p.m. Um, yesterday we had our football game. Um, so if you saw some people walking into church looking a little sore, looking a little worse for the wear with some ankle braces on, uh, we had a great time, but it was a bit more competitive than I expected. I did not go last year, but went this year, and I'm a little sore this morning, got some bruises, but it was a lot of fun. If you brought up this football and you left it, we have it here for you. I was hoping it would be somebody in the service and then I could just toss it. But it doesn't look like it's anybody here. We'll keep asking around. If you hear somebody missing a football, we have it. Yeah? No? Okay. <laughs> um, and also, um, if you weren't here last week, I just want to encourage you to go and look up that message. We talked about the problem that we're having here as a church. Um, we do own our building outright, free and clear, so we own this amazing historic building. But with historic buildings come some problems. So this building was originally built in the late 50s into the 60s, and our roof is having some issues. So those big abutments on the side of the building, as you see in the pictures there, have some significant cracking. cracking. Some of that is surface level, but some of that is actually structural. So we started a new campaign called Raise the Roof to do exactly that. Raise some funds, significant amount of funds. We're actually looking to raise like $110,000, which means like a, a ridiculous amount of money. But we know that if we partner together and if we pray, that God is going to provide the funds. So if you have not heard that message, Matt gave a great message out of Nehemiah looking at how we can actually rebuild to continue our impact here in our community. Um, the church is not a building. The church is all of us who gather together and proclaim the name of Jesus. But having a building, and in fact having the only building of a church in Stapleton, allows us to do ministry, to house ministry. We house recovery groups, AA, uh, assorted other ones. We also help a, a Spanish church who meets here between our morning services and our night service. So we do a lot of amazing things with this building, and we want to continue to help people follow Jesus here in Northeast Denver. So if you haven't heard that message, I encourage you to go to YouTube or go to um, our podcast. If you're a podcast person like me, we have the audio up there. Um, you're just looking for a time to rebuild. Um, if you listen to the message and are so moved, we encourage you to pray about giving to support our campaign and partner with us to help us raise the roof. You can either do that through the regular offering or go to stapletonchurch.com slash give. There's a raise the roof section on there that you can give right online. So, encourage you to listen to that. But this week, we are jumping back into our Belong series. We took a, a break last week, but we're continuing on with the series, looking at two competing realities. The first is that we've never been more connected. They, they, said, they used to say that we had six degrees of separation, that with, through six people we could connect with anyone in the world. And actually, due to the internet and social media and Facebook, it's actually down to three that we can connect to any of the seven and a half billion people in the world through three other people. And so we've never been more connected in the entirety of human history, and yet it, while that is true, the same thing is true is that we've never felt more alone. We're disconnected. We long for relationship, for community. We long, as the series title suggests, to belong. And so we're continuing that this week. And I'm really excited about it. <laughs> I hope you are too. 
Um, I've come on staff full-time here. Uh, it's been a couple of months now, so I just want to thank you all right off the bat for your gifts that not only support the mission of the church, but allow people like me to be pastors, which I greatly appreciate, and I hold it with honor. So thank you very much. Um, but that also means that in addition to my student ministries responsibilities, I've taken over our communications. So I send out the weekly email newsletter. I make sure everything's all set up for our Sunday mornings, people in place to do all the various tasks that we have. And I also manage our social media. And if you've ever been in social media marketing or are familiar with that, as you start to search around online, you soon become inundated and jump down the rabbit hole into social media of when to post, of algorithms, of techniques, marketing, blogs, and systems that help you do social media better, that encourage you to curate your church's Instagram, to make it an accurate picture of what your church is like, to use Facebook as a means to share the gospel, why your church needs a YouTube or a TikTok or whatever other new media is out there. And as silly as that may seem, it's actually a reality for all of us that are on social media. Because just like I'm attempting to make the church an adequate and accurate representation of who we are and what we're about to help people follow Jesus, if we are on social media, each one of us is doing that for our own lives. We're curating our lives. We're being intentional about the things that we post, when we post, what we like, the angle that we take our selfie at, how much we edit it. We are creating a representation of who we are. And whether we're intentional about it or not, we are curating our lives. Maybe you're someone who is always posting pictures of your travels, you in places throughout the whole world to make yourself seem adventurous, worldly, well-traveled. Maybe you're always posting of the latest Fortino you climbed or your next ski trip. Or the newest brewery you've been to to seem like the most Colorado person out there. Maybe you're a new parent like Sarah and I, and our social media has been taken up with adorable pictures of our new baby. But no matter what that is, we are selecting the moments that we decide to post and hiding other ones. Sarah and I are not posting the pictures of Lucy crying her head off when she's hungry, or the diapers that continue to pile up. We're posting the cute, adorable pictures of her smiling, of us holding her in her arms. And as much as we all are curating our lives online, there's a class of people that are even doing it more so. Are you familiar with influencers? We have a picture of an influencer page from Instagram. Influencers are celebrities, in a sense, but really they're more micro-celebrities. They have gained a following either with a blog or posting fashionable pictures that companies are actually using them to advertise. They're partnering with them, giving them free products, free experiences, free whatever, so that they can motivate you, influence you to buy the product. Giving you a discount code, a link in the bio, whatever that is, or even, like this one, she has her own shop. And so just as you and I are actually curating our lives, people out there are curating their lives in such a way to actually monetize it. To be used to influence other people. 
And so I think what has happened in our modern social technological age is that what we post online isn't actually an adequate and accurate representation of who we are. It's become an avatar. An avatar, if you're not familiar, is a character or a cartoon, something like this. That's my bitmoji of me preaching up on the stage. And although that character obviously looks like me, that's not really who I am. It's an avatar, a character, a cartoon. But as silly as it may seem, what has happened is our connection online is connecting through avatars of ourselves. Curated, selected, intentional, sometimes perfected images of who we are. And not really, honestly, who we are on the inside. And so it's no wonder that in the midst of all of this connection, we feel alone. Because as we connect more and more through a screen, we lose ourselves. We lose what makes us us. And so when we look at people online and see the perfected lives of what we've chosen to post, we feel lost, less than alone. But I think the solution doesn't come from maybe posting some vulnerable pics on your Instagram, although that may help. I think the solution actually comes from the Bible. Because even though Paul was never curating his Instagram in order to get more followers to share the gospel, he never had a GoFundMe page to support his missionary journeys. He was never on Facebook he actually gives us a great example of what it looks like to share your real self. And maybe, just maybe, a solution to our feelings of loneliness. And so, we're jumping into 2 Corinthians. This is the second letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And what has happened between the first letter and the second letter is that these individuals called super apostles have come in and have infiltrated the church. Now, super apostles on the bat might seem like a really good thing, right? Like, apostles of Jesus, they're super apostles. They're like superheroes, they have capes. But that's not the case. They're described as super apostles is because they build themselves up. They boast. They speak of these grand visions with eloquent terms to actually draw people the people of Corinth, away from the truth. And what Paul is doing throughout the most of this letter is saying, guys, what are you doing? He's defending his message. He's defending his own apostleship. He's saying, why are you straying from the saving truth of the gospel? He's opening up. So, we are in 2 Corinthians 12, started in the second half of verse 7, and it starts like this. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. A bold start. But what in the world is going on here, right? So, quick tip, whenever you see the word therefore in something you're reading, and especially in the Bible, you've got to see what he's referring to. What is he saying therefore to? And at the beginning of this chapter which Paul has been building towards, he's been boasting in his weakness. 
which is a really odd approach. If Paul is trying to defend his apostleship, defend his message, defend the truth, then you think Paul would rely on the things that we all do. Our experiences, our education, our expertise. And Paul had all those things. He had been a missionary for a few years now. He had traveled. He had experienced what it was like. He was a Pharisee. Someone who had the most education of their day, who had memorized word for word the words of our Old Testament. He was the pinnacle of what we long to be as Christians. Closer to God than maybe us regular people long to be. And yet even with all of that in his past, he puts it all aside and says, I'm going to boast in my weakness. Boast in the things that actually disqualify me from sharing the good news. While these super apostles boast of their own qualifications, their own expertise, their own grand visions in order to draw and attract people away, Paul is going to boast in his weakness and by his weakness point them back to God. And so at the beginning of this chapter, he boasts about a vision. A vision not that he had, but a vision that it says a man that he was with had. A man that he was with was taken up to the third heaven and had this vision of God in his dwelling place. The very presence of God and seeing God face to face. Now the third heaven. Now I don't want you going to Pastor Matt when he comes back and saying, Hey, Sawyer taught us that there were three heavens. What in the world is he doing? No, no, no. What the third heaven is talking about is in the Jewish understanding of the world, the heaven was a category that encompassed the sky, space, and the third heaven, the utmost, what we would actually just call today heaven, was the dwelling place of God. So no, there are not three heavens, there is one heaven, but in a Jewish understanding of the world, that's how they would describe it. So he was taken up into the presence of God and see God face to face. Which again, seems like a really interesting thing to boast about, right? That your friend had this vision of God. So you have two choices to make this morning, and this is the first. Who had this vision? I think it's three possible options. Maybe it was one of Paul's friends, one of his fellow missionary buddies, Barnabas, Timothy, Matthew maybe, who had this vision, and that Paul is actually turning the focus away from himself and boasting about them. Or maybe he's actually poking fun at the super apostles who chose and made up these grand stories of visions of God in order to give evidence and credence to their message. Maybe he's poking fun at them, disqualifying that, saying, do you trust them when they say this? Or maybe it's the last option, and I think this is maybe the most likely considering this verse, which we'll get into it in a second. Paul is actually talking about himself. We do the same thing, don't we? Maybe when we're looking for advice, or bringing about an awkward situation, or something that's embarrassing, or maybe even a good thing that we don't want to be bragging about, we talk about it as if it was someone we knew. Yeah, so I had a a friend who did this. What do you think they should do when we're actually talking about ourselves, right? Or maybe we're talking about experience that we had, and we don't want to seem like we're bragging, and so we put it on someone else. And so I think Paul is doing just that. Because in this verse, he says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, this passage is him boasting in his weakness. 
And so he declaims that he has this grand vision of God, seeing God face to face. Then he's no better than the super apostles. And so all that has taken place. Paul has been building and building, boasting in even greater and greater weaknesses until he gets to this point. And this point is his last point in this. The ultimate, the climax of his argument. He says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. A messenger of Satan to torment me. And then he continues on in verse 8 and says, three times... I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. So what is this thorn in the flesh? Your first choice was who had this vision. And the second choice is what is this thorn? If you've been around church for a while, you're probably familiar with this phrase. We've kind of taken it out and used it to describe maybe some of our own struggles. And even if this is your first time stepping foot in a church, we're so glad you're here first off. And second off, you've probably heard that before, because it has seeped into our vernacular, our language that we use. We describe difficulties and issues that we have as thorns in the flesh. And that's where this comes from. Paul talking about his own difficulties. But what is it? What is this thorn? So I think there's a couple options again. First, maybe it was a physical illness, a thorn literally in his flesh. Maybe that's all it was. Maybe he stepped on a thorn and it just never went away. Maybe he's talking metaphorically about another disease, another struggle he had. In a couple of verses in some of other Paul's writings, it seems like he maybe had some issues with his eyes. Or maybe he wasn't the most eloquent speaker. Or maybe he had some disease or illness going on in his life, but a physical illness. Or maybe he's speaking of some psychological problem, anxiety. Or depression, or maybe some sort of mental illness, a personality disorder, or maybe some propensity towards a specific sin. Maybe Paul was struggling with lust, or with greed, or with pride. Or finally, a third option. Maybe Paul was just speaking of his oppression. You see, Paul, even one of the most successful missionaries ever, started more churches than maybe more than any single person, Paul experienced a lot of hardship. He was run out of towns. He was almost killed. He was in competition for the competing of the truth with Judaizers and super apostles. He lived a rough life, always trying to scrape money together through selling tents to support his missionary journeys to not put that burden on the churches. Paul experienced a lot of oppression in his life. So maybe that's what he's talking about here. And no matter what specifically Paul's thorn is, I think two things are true. The first is that this was a thing that affected all of Paul's life. As it says, it torments him. It's like a messenger of the devil himself. Not a minor problem, not an inconvenience but something that affects his day-to-day life, his interactions with other people, his ministry, and maybe most importantly, his relationship with God. We see here that he pleads with the Lord to take it away. I think he says the number three, but I think he's actually saying that this is a thing that encompasses his whole life. These aren't simple prayers of like, God, yeah, it would be great if you took this thorn from me. I might be able to be more effective. 
But I think it's Paul bearing his soul to God, crying out on his knees in prayer night after night after night. God, take this from me. Take this from me. But the relief and the thorn is never taken away. And so I think, like Paul, all of us have thorns. Either we have a a series of small thorns in our life that seem to pile up time after time, or maybe, like Paul, it's one thorn. One thing that encompasses your entire life, that affects your day-to-day life, that you plead with God time after time again to take away, but maybe it never happens. Perhaps it is a physical illness. An illness that you or maybe a loved one or a family member has. Chronic pain, cancer, Alzheimer's, whatever that is. But physical illnesses affect the entire course of our life. It changes the things that we can do. The dreams that we have. Our plans for the future. And even though we pray time and time again, Maybe healing never comes. Maybe it is a psychological concern. You struggle with anxiety or depression or have a mental illness or maybe a propensity towards sin that you try to remove time and time again but continue to fall into. Perhaps for you, like Paul, you've experienced a rough past. When you look back on your life and your opportunities for the future, you just feel oppressed. And it's a struggle even to wake up in the morning because you know more oppression is coming. But whatever that thorn or series of thorns is for you, we all have them. We all have them. And that's true for all of us in this room. It's true for me. You see, pastors are not exempt from thorns. Just because we decide to be pastors and God calls us into ministry of his church doesn't mean that we're exempt from the thorns of life. Because for me, one of the thorns that has defined my life and has shaped me is my pride. My pride that causes me to value the things that I do, even the things I do for other people, more than other people. I seek to raise myself up while at the same time seeking to bring down other people. This has affected my relationships, my ministry. And most importantly, my relationship with God. Because I often fall into the trap of thinking that I can rely on my own strength. That even though I praise God with my mouth, the way that I live, the choices that I make throughout the week don't reflect that. They reflect a reliance and trust on myself instead of on God. And it has shaped me throughout my life thus far. And even though I feel that God has molded me and shaped me and challenged me in that way, it's still a struggle. It's still a struggle. And so all of us, yes, even pastors, have thorns. And we all have weaknesses. We all have struggles. And what Paul is going to say in this next verse should surprise us. It should shock us. Even if we've heard it before, we think that it should surprise us. Because what Paul is going to say and what God has told Paul is actually what God says to us all. In the midst of our thorns, in the midst of our weaknesses. 
verse 9. But he said to me, this is God talking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, and therefore I, Paul, will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. You see, even though relief and healing and the thorn being removed never comes for Paul, what God says to him is that my grace is sufficient for you. And despite your weaknesses, despite your hardships, despite your pain, despite the problems that Paul continues to go through in every day of his life, God is still using him as a messenger of the gospel. And just as that is true for Paul, the same thing is true for us. God is saying to us this morning that his grace is sufficient for us and that his power is made perfect in all of our weaknesses. And that is something to celebrate. How many of you like Marvel movies? Raise your hands. A lot of people out there. And I think why we like Marvel movies, beyond the fight between good versus evil and the cinematic epic battles, if you haven't seen The Last Avengers, I really encourage you to do so because it's an awesome scene where everybody from the past like 30 movies is gathering in this awesome battle and there's everybody there. But even in the midst of all that excitement, I think what actually connects us to Marvel movies The thing that makes the story so captivating is the character's weaknesses. Think about it. Even though these people have been gifted or have superhuman abilities, they approach these ridiculous situations of aliens or Thanos getting rid of half the world's populations in really human ways. Spider-Man, when he was bitten by a radioactive spider and gets superpowers, and even with that, more responsibility. He's an average teenager, struggling with feelings of inadequacy, trying to ask a girl out. We can relate to that. Black Widow, even though she was an assassin in her past, who was brainwashed and designed to kill other people, is now trying to fight for good to make up of the problems of her past. We can relate to that. Iron Man, even though he is trying to save the entire world, struggles with feelings of confusion, of whether anything that he's doing is actually making a difference in the world. We can relate to that. And even Captain America, a man of honor and respect, feels lost in the modern age, has this nostalgia for a past that he never experienced, and feels alone and experiences loneliness. We can relate to that. Because the same thing that connects us with these characters in Marvel actually connects us with other people. And that's exactly what Paul is doing with the people in Corinth. In the midst of these super apostles boasting about themselves, speaking of the truth they have, and trying to draw people away from the truth of the gospel, what Paul is doing is saying, My message is not about me. I'm weak. I struggle. I have hardships. In fact, I have this thorn in the flesh. This difficulty that the Corinthians were aware of. Paul is burying his soul. His deepest, darkest secret. He's laying it all out on the line. 
for the sake of relationship, for the sake of trust, for the sake of connection. Because just in the same way that we are drawn to the characters of Marvel because of their weaknesses, we connect to other people in our weaknesses. Paul is saying, my message is from God. It's not from me. And that's the only reason why in verse 10 he can say this. That is why, in Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. Paul knows that in spite of his weaknesses, God is using him. And the same is true for us. But none of our weaknesses or our thorns or our persecution or insults or hardships or whatever is purposeless. Because the purpose is those weaknesses can draw us into relationship with one another. Because what Paul has done throughout this entire passage is open himself up. This is who I am. Weaknesses, thorns, insults, hardships, and all. And yet God is using me. Because his message is true. Paul has used his weaknesses to connect with the people in Corinth. And has given us a perfect example of what it looks like to actually have real connections. Because vulnerability prevents invisibility. When we open ourselves up, when we allow ourselves to be seen, and we do that in relationships of love, where the other person is doing the exact same thing and opening, some, opening themselves up, no one can be invisible. Vulnerability is the key, is part of the solution to our connection problem. When we're vulnerable, when we open up, we are seen and no one can feel alone. Brene Brown is one of the most foremost researchers and sociologists in this area. She has given her life to studying vulnerability and shame. And if you've never heard one of her TED Talks, look it up online. Highly recommend it. But she had this to say, that staying vulnerable is a risk that we have to take if we want to experience connection. We have to open up. We have to be vulnerable. We have to allow ourselves to be seen if we ever want to experience the connection, the relationship, the community, and feel like we belong. We have to take that risk. But you might be sitting there in your seat and saying, yeah, that, that, that's true for most people, Sawyer. That might be true for other people, but you see, what I have found is easier is to go through life by myself. Because relationships and vulnerability and opening up are messy. They're problematic. They create difficulties. And so you know what? It's way easier for me to just do me and continue on my life and lone wolf it. But as easy on the surface as that may seem, we're actually fighting against the very way that we were created. Because all the way back in Genesis, when God created the world, God said that it was good, good, and good. But do you know the first thing that God said was not good? 
It's actually not the fall. It's not sin. It's not separation. The first thing that was not good was that Adam was alone. That he was lonely. And think about that. If Adam could experience loneliness in perfect relationship with himself, with all of creation, and with God, then we're for sure going to experience loneliness in our broken and difficult world. And God doesn't critique him. He doesn't say, Adam, why are you feeling lonely? You have me. You have creation. No, he actually solves the problem. He creates Eve. He provides him a companion. He provides relationship, community, and for them to enjoy and experience life together. From the very beginning, we were created for community. Created for relationship. So even though we think on the surface that we can do life alone, and maybe for a while it's going to be easier, but when the problems come, when the thorns arise, when hardships come, it is so much easier to walk through life in community and relationship. And it allows us to experience the fullness of life that God has created us to have. But perhaps you're on the other end of the spectrum. You've tried to be vulnerable. You've tried to open up. You've tried relationship, but time and time again, you experience pain. You're made fun of. You're talked behind your back. So much to a point that you start to even devalue yourself. How can I open up to somebody else when I can't even open up to myself? How is somebody going to love me? When I can't even love myself. Vulnerability is messy. It's difficult. And if it's for you the hardest thing that you ever have to do in your life, it's still worth it. It's still worth it. We have this idea that in order to be loved, we have to love ourselves. And that's even supported by some psychology research out there. But Bruce Perry, who actually works and rehabilitates kids who have experienced childhood abuse and trauma, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, and actually works through them in counseling to help them get to a place where they can actually grow up and function as an adult, still dealing with their pain, but living and experiencing life. He had this to say. For years, mental health professionals taught people that they could be psychologically healthy without social support. We've heard that. That unless you love yourself, no one else will love you. But the truth is this. You cannot love yourself unless you have been loved and are loved. Because the capacity to love is not built in isolation. It's not built in isolation. It's almost like we were designed that way. Because in order to effectively love ourselves, we need other people. We need to be loved and have loving in our past. It's not built in isolation. So as scary and frightening as opening yourself up and exposing who you really are may be, taking off the mask, removing the avatar, the caricature, the curation of your life and saying, this is who I am, weaknesses, thorns, pain. But you know what? When you do that, relationship is going to bloom. Relationship 
is built on vulnerability because vulnerability prevents invisibility. It's what we were designed to do. And as the band comes forward and we move into this time of communion, I think it's so appropriate as this message is on the first of the month when we gather together at the table and enjoy communion with one another. Because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ lived vulnerably when he was a human. He opened himself up, exposing who he was, developing relationship and community with his disciples, with the people, and speaking out to the forgotten, the lost, the people that were pushed aside. Jesus wept at the loss of Lazarus. He cried blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing, knowing what he had to do. Jesus was deeply vulnerable, even vulnerable to death on a cross. And three days later, God raised him from the dead, conquering our sin, conquering our pain, conquering our hardships, conquering our thorns. And so now we all have a seat at the table. We all belong. If we declare the name of Jesus Christ, we get to join together as a church in communion. As James says in a verse that we're familiar with, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. But right before there it says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The church should be a place filled with vulnerable people. People that have opened themselves up, who join together and say, yes, we're broken. Yes, we have thorns. Yes, we have weaknesses. But God's grace is sufficient for us. God's power is made perfect in our weaknesses and we can join together and say this is a place where no one is invisible and everyone has a seat at the table. So as the elements are passed out, just take a few moments. Think about your thorns. Think about your past. Know that God knows all of it and still longs to be in relationship with you. And know that you have a seat at the table. As you get the bread and the wine, go ahead and hold on to it, and we will all take communion together.
Dobrze, że się zgłaszam, 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 że się zg